that they give to these two very important entities, faith and family. Faith is important. Family is important. And would it not be the case that if faith, if faith resided in, in every individual as the scriptures teach us about faith, and if every family, if every family were constructed as God designed the family and those families were being maintained in that way, what a wonderful world this would be, sure enough. That's the ideal. And it is the ideal for which we should strive. Because remember Matthew 5.48 said, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard. That's the goal. Perfection. When it comes to faith, when it comes to family, when it comes to whatever spiritual subject we might discuss. But for the next few weeks, the Lord willing, I'd like first to emphasize for the remainder of this month on Sunday morning these two great and vitally important concepts, faith and family. First of all, faith. This morning, I'd like for us to ask five crucial questions about faith and answer those questions from the scriptures. That's the only answer we should be concerned about. Not what someone else says about faith that may or may not be in harmony with the will of God. We need to know, we need to know the answers to these questions about faith from the word of God. Now here are the five questions we will ask and answer this morning. Very basically, we begin with the question, what is faith? What is faith? Secondly, how important is faith? Thirdly, does all faith please God? And fourthly, growing out of the third, what faith does please God? What kind of faith pleases God? And finally, in the fifth place, can faith be forfeited? Can faith be forfeited? First of all, what is faith? Well, let's let the scripture answer directly. Hebrews 11.1 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Could you find a better definition of faith, more succinct, more scriptural than the scriptural definition? Certainly not. The Hebrews writer by inspiration tells us what faith is. It's the substance of things hoped for. And we've mentioned before that that word substance literally is a word that means that which stands under something. In other words, it is, it is the foundation. It is the foundation. The substance means it's the foundation upon which everything else is built. Specifically, in this, in this passage, the things, plural, that are hoped for. Everything we should be hoping for, if we're thinking as we should, spiritually minded in our thinking, faith is the foundation for everything. But it is also the evidence of things that we cannot see. 
In other words, faith, as we'll see a little bit later on and reiterate here, is based upon very clear evidence. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is not something that is just based upon air. It's based upon substance. It has a foundation. It is the foundation, and it is based upon evidence. So that's a beautiful definition, and very succinct definition of faith. It's the foundation, the substance of everything upon which we build our hope. Our hope being our desire and our expectation of ultimately having having the realization of seeing the Lord as He is. Though we cannot see Him now, our faith can be strong nonetheless because of the nature of biblical faith. And our hope is that one day, because of our faith, we'll be able to see Him as He is. But how important is faith? Let the Scriptures answer again. That's our second question. How important is faith? Well, I'm assuming that everyone here this morning is here because you desire to please God. But the Scripture says you cannot do that. That's an impossibility without faith. That's how important faith is. And again, we go to Hebrews 11 and let that inspired writer there, answer for us in verse 6 this time. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. That's God, him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Well, implicit in that statement, what is explicit is that without faith you can't please God. What is implicit there is that we must come to God, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who what? Here's the other implicit point, diligently seek him. We must diligently seek him. We must come to him. We must diligently seek him, but how do we do that? By faith. And without that faith, you can't come to God. Without that faith, you cannot seek God. Therefore, faith is not just important, it's indispensable, isn't it? It is absolutely indispensable. So, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the very foundation of everything upon which our, our spiritual lives are built. That's how crucial it is as that foundational characteristic. How important is it? Without it, you can't please God. You have no hope of pleasing Him at all. So it's absolutely indispensable. But then we come to the third question. And it is a crucial question indeed. Does all faith please God? Does all faith please God? Or does the Bible again, as we go to the scriptures, does the Bible again tell us that not all faith pleases God? Well, listen to James chapter 2 and verse 19. Taken from a context to which we will return in a few moments to see it in a fuller sense. But in this verse, James writes this. You believe that there is one God? 
you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. That statement is a statement that clearly says not all faith pleases God. It has to, doesn't it? Because James says, you believe that there's one God. In other words, you have faith. You have faith that there is one God. And there are a great many people in our world today who have that kind of faith. They'll tell you that God exists. That they believe that God exists. And uh, certainly we must believe that He does. That gets us back to Hebrews 11.6. We must believe that He is... <laughs> But what we also saw was that he rewards those who what? Not just believe who he is, but diligently seek him. And so James reminds us that if you believe there is one God, that's all well and good, but not good enough. That's how we would modernize that phrase, you do well. What he's saying is, that's not good enough. How do we know he's saying that? Because the next statement is, even the demons believe that he is. Even the demons, even the demons believe, and not only do they believe, their belief causes them to tremble. They fear God. Remember in Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus came to the coast of the Gergesenes, you remember there were those who were demons about whom James writes here as he speaks of demons. But here we have an example there of when he came into the coast here. Verse 28, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out saying, listen to this, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God. They confessed Jesus to be the Son of God. And then they admitted the power that he had as the Son of God. When they asked, have you come here to torment us before the time? They knew their ultimate punishment was coming. Are you here to do that before the time? James says the demons believe and tremble, and there's an example of it in Matthew 8, beginning at verse 28. Were the demons saved in their belief? Well, of course not. And so, obviously, James tells us in James 2.19 that not all faith pleases God. Not even a faith that simply says, I believe that God exists. I believe that He is. And so then that leads us to our fourth crucial question. What kind of faith pleases God? Oh, that's crucial, isn't it? If I know what faith is, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, I know that without faith it's impossible to please God, but I also know that not all faith pleases God, then I certainly, if I'm thinking straight at all, want to know what kind of faith it is that does please God. And thankfully, the Scripture tells us. Tragically, man has perverted what the Scripture tells us. But thankfully, the Scriptures are still there. And for those who are willing to lay aside 
the prejudice and confusion that may have been produced by false teaching on the subject, we can absolutely know with certainty the kind of faith that pleases God. Now let's go back to James and look at that larger context from which we took James 2.19 a few moments ago. And this time we go back to verse 14 of James chapter 2 and read through verse 24. One of the greatest treatises ever written in Scripture on this vitally important subject. At verse 14, James asks, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect and the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. We go on through the Next two verses, likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? And then finally, verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. What kind of faith pleases God? James has just told us. But let's break it down specifically into several points. The first of which is this. The faith that pleases God is based upon facts. That gets us back to Hebrews 11.1, 1, doesn't it? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. How can I have evidence of things that I cannot see? by the facts that are presented in the scriptures, which I can see. Romans ten seventeen says what? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's the evidence to which the Hebrews writer alludes, obviously, in Hebrews 11, 1. The evidence of things not seen is this evidence right here. I have evidence of the things I cannot see, and what I can see, and what I can read. And that produces Faith. So faith is based upon facts, Romans 10, 17. Therefore, faith has to be more than feeling. If faith is based upon facts, it has to be more than just feeling alone. And yet, tragically, there are many who base their eternal welfare on feeling, separate and apart from the facts. Proverbs 16.25 says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end 
is the way of death. A way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way of death. What about the feeling that the Jews, many of them, to whom Paul penned his Roman epistle, what about the feeling that they had? In Romans 10, chapter 1, remember Paul wrote, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. That's feeling. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Faith that was feeling, but not based upon facts. Not the true facts. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And then he writes further, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness. Here's God's righteousness in this book. They being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. That which makes man righteous, the righteousness of God, is the word of God. And the Jews to whom Paul wrote were clinging to a former dispensation and not willing to listen to the facts, the evidence the New Testament. And so faith is based upon facts, the proper facts, obviously. And therefore it is more than feeling, Proverbs sixteen twenty five, Romans 10, 1 through 3. But another aspect of this faith that pleases God that James has described for us so beautifully is that it must move us forward. Faith has to cause us to work. Isn't that what James wrote? Faith without works is dead. Proper kind of works. In other words, faith has to be a forward-moving faith. It has to move me forward. Now again, you go to Hebrews 11, and we've talked about it many times, and you see the phrase, by faith, in reference to various individuals who are listed there, and by faith they what? They moved. In other words, they did something by faith. They acted upon their faith. Completely consistent with what James describes in James 2.14 beginning, we see in the examples that are set forth in Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah moved with fear, prepared an ark. By faith, Abel offered, verb of action, offered. By faith, he offered. That was a work. Proper kind of work. But then we have a beautiful example of faith not moving someone forward in John 12, 42 and 43. And this is a powerful example of the point we are seeking to make here, right now. In John chapter 12, we find these rulers of the synagogue, these Jews of Jesus' day who saw Jesus, who obviously saw the miracles that he performed, who heard the teaching that was like no other teaching that they had ever heard, and they what? Verse 42 says, they believed. There's faith. They believed. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43 says, here's why. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now that's powerful, tragically powerful, 
because it says they believed in Jesus Christ, but they would not move forward to become his follower by faith. They wouldn't let their faith move them because they feared being put out of the synagogue by their fellow Jews. And the commentary, divine commentary is this, they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Were they saved in that belief? No. No. Because they wouldn't let their faith move them forward. Gets back to James, faith without works is dead. Faith without forward movement, prompted by faith, is dead. That brings us to the next point. The faith that pleases God bears fruit. You can see it. It bears fruit. Great statement in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. Remember where Paul in this epistle is talking to, writing to these Christians who were being influenced to go back under Judaism and to observe the rite of circumcision and to bind part of the law of Moses upon them. And he said, you do not need to do that. If you do that, you have fallen from grace. But in the process of that teaching, he says to them in verse 6 of chapter 5, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. It's not that law. That law has been done away. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision that avails anything. Well, what is it, Paul? But faith working through love. Faith working. Isn't that what James says? Faith that works is the faith that saves. Faith working through love. That's an important addition. Motivated by love. Motivated by love. We talked about that in Bible class this morning. The supreme motivation. The supreme motivation is love. Paul says everything right here is summarized so beautifully about the Christian life. Here's what it is. It's not the law of Moses. That law has been done away. It's not trying to work your way to heaven by, by works that you would devise. You can't earn salvation, but there is a kind of work that you must be involved in. The work of faith. Motivated by what? Love. Let love motivate you to bear fruit. To let your faith, to let your faith be seen. And in other epistles, the Apostle Paul made it abundantly clear that faith could be seen. When he wrote to the Thessalonians, he wrote about their faith. Listen to Second, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3. Well, verse 2 to get the context. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Listen to it. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith. Now, how much clearer could it be put? Remembering without ceasing your what? Expression of faith? That you say you believe? No, your work of faith. And then he goes on, labor of love. Labor motivated by love. Faith has to work. Faith has to move us forward. Faith has to bear fruit. And beyond that, faith also looks to the future. Our faith looks to the future. Go back with me to Hebrews 11 again and see how faith looked to the future in the life of 
the one who is called the father of the faithful, Abraham. In Hebrews 11, verse 8, beginning, By faith Abraham obeyed. Listen to that again. By faith Abraham what? Obeyed. Faith caused him to obey. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would afterward receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Now listen to verse 10. For he waited, the new King James says, the King James says, looked for, he looked for, waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's Abraham's faith looking to the future. That's Abraham's faith leaving Ur of the Chaldees. A pretty good situation from all indications from the archaeologist about Ur of the Chaldees in Abraham's day, and he went out from a good situation to dwell in tents in a land he'd never even seen because his faith was looking beyond Canaan to the heavenly Canaan, to the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Faith has to look to the future. And you know, faith looking to the future can certainly help us deal with the adversities of the present. A faith that looks to the future can help you deal with the trials in the present. If you don't believe me, listen to Paul. Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's faith looking to the future. And as it does, helping you to deal with the present. And to successfully overcome the trials and tribulations that this life will inevitably bring if we live long enough in this life. Faith looks to the future. And the kind of faith that pleases God reaches its fruition in death. Or when the Lord comes again, not one minute before. Be faithful until death. Even unto death, the latter part of Revelation 2.10. And the Lord says, I'll give you the crown of life. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Latter part of 1 John 5, 4. What is it? Our faith. Our faith. That's what can overcome this world. And enable you to enjoy the next. For all eternity. And that's the kind of faith that pleases God. Faith that is based upon facts, that is more than feeling, that moves us forward, that bears fruit, looks to the future and reaches its fruition in death. But our final and fifth question is this. Can faith be forfeited? If you have come to have this kind of faith that pleases God, by believing that Jesus is the Christ, John 8, 24. By acting upon that belief, by repenting of your sins, 
Acts 2, 38. Luke 13, 3 and verse 5. Repent or perish, the Lord said. If you have further acted upon that faith by confessing before men that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Matthew 10, 32 and 33, as Jesus said, if you'll confess me, I'll confess you. And then if you have let your faith move you completely forward to complete your obedience by a work that is not a work that you devised, not a work of the law of Moses, but a work of faith that God has set forth, baptism. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. In other words, he who believes and lets that belief move him forward to complete my will and be buried with me in baptism, he shall be saved. If you've done those things, can you ever forfeit the faith that you so beautifully and lovingly exhibited when you obeyed the gospel of Christ and were added to the church of the New Testament? the Lord's kingdom, the church. Can you forfeit that faith? Well, there are those who teach a different plan of salvation than the one we've just outlined from Scripture who say that even when you've obeyed that plan, the sinner's prayer, and have prayed to invite Jesus into your heart, if you've truly been saved as they, as they purport salvation to be, your faith can never be forfeited. In other words, you can never lose your soul. You may lose the joy of your salvation, but in a sense, they're saying your faith can't be forfeited. Isn't that what they're saying? If they say your faith can be forfeited, but you'll still save your soul, that's contrary to what the Hebrews writer wrote in Hebrews 11.6 when he said, without faith, it's impossible to please him. If I can't please God without faith and I lose my faith, how can I continue to please God? That doesn't make any sense, does it? So obviously those who contend that once you're saved, you're always saved, have to in effect be saying your faith can never be forfeited. Otherwise you couldn't please God. You can't go to heaven without pleasing God. But here's what the scripture says. Having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul says, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul there in 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20, not only says that there were some who lost their faith, Hymenaeus and Alexander, but that he did what the scriptures teach us to do in order to fulfill God's will and if possible, to bring them home. I withdrew from them, severed fellowship in the hope that they might learn not to blaspheme. They forfeited their faith. And tragically, we have those among us who are not among us literally today who have done that same thing. And we're making every effort, and hope you are, to bring them home. Here's another passage. But shun profane and idle babblings, Paul writes to Timothy, for they will increase to more ungodliness and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort 
who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and listen, and they overthrow the faith of some. They overthrow the faith of some. Can faith be overthrown? An inspired writer says, indeed. And here were two men, because of their false teaching, who had overthrown the faith of some. Next week, the Lord willing, we will study another very important aspect of faith in discussing why it is that so many have not embraced, in fact, continue to oppose the biblical definition of faith. And we'll preview it by simply saying they fail many times to understand the various ways in which the word faith or belief, one of those words is used in Scripture. And so the next lesson, having discussed five crucial questions concerning the faith, will be five ways in which faith is used in Scripture. It's not hard for us to understand, but man has clouded the issue and has taken passages out of context and applied them to a faith-only salvation belief, and those passages are saying nothing of the sort. We'll see that, Lord willing, next time. But as we conclude our thoughts this morning, we ask, what about your faith? Is it truly the foundation, the substance of things hoped for? And can you say that you have that hope of heaven because you know you have listened to, read, heard the evidence of things not seen and responded to that by obeying the gospel, by believing, repenting, confessing Christ and being buried with him in baptism? If you haven't done those things, to be added to his church, the church we read about in the New Testament, the pre-denominational body of Christ, then we plead with you to do that. And if you have, but you're among those who have forfeited their faith and know that you need to come home to your first love and to that faith based upon evidence that you once had that you have now lost in repentance and confession, we plead with you to return as we stand to sing to encourage.